Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with former Green Bay Packers offensive tackle, Tony Mandarich. Thanks for coming on the show, Tony. Jonathan, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, Like I just mentioned, I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more uh, about your story and just things over the years and, and certainly what you're up to now and, and your recovery. Um, and speaking of that, I'd really like to start off by hearing about what things were like before you got sober and, and really how you ended up finding recovery. So where would you say this all starts just in terms of your relationship with, uh, with addiction? You know, it's a great question. <laughs> you know, the, I think part of that question relies on what someone's belief is, whether it's a disease or whether it's, you know, pull up your bootstraps and suck it up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I believe it's a disease no different than cancer um, or any other disease that'll kill you dead. Um, it's one of the few diseases, though, I will say, if, if maybe the only disease where your life in recovery can be better than what your life was like before you became actively really addicted. Um, But, you know, it's, I mean, I didn't drink alcoholically and I didn't use drugs like a, say like an addict would until I would say, until I got to like Green Bay, uh, which would have been 89. I mean, now that doesn't mean obviously I didn't, drink before that or drug before that I did I I did steroids at at school uh, at college for five years you know so that that could be argued as well that was a gateway drug Um, if you're lowering your inhibitions or your decision making to maybe doing that as time goes on you're gonna you know keep those inhibitions low and maybe be like well you know what I can take a few painkillers or a few more painkillers and prescribe by doctor. Um, but like on the steroids, I mean, it, I can't, I almost started laughing because I was going to say on steroids, my life wasn't as unmanageable as it was when I was in the midst of my addiction. But looking back, there was a lot of unmanagement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to, I do want to ask you about the, the steroid use later on. I certainly yeah. want to jump more into that for those that don't know uh, your story. And I don't know all of your, your history. Um, when did you start playing football and, and just what did your career look like coming up? Well, you know, I, I born and raised in Canada um when I was 11 years old which is pretty young I mean if you look at 11 year old now you're like wow that's a pretty young age to make a career decision Hmm. and and my decision was at that time 
that I was going to play in the NFL. I was, or I was going to be a pro football player or I was going to play football as a living. I loved it. I just, it, I mean, I want to say it almost consumed my, like my love for the game was consumed by it. And growing up in the late seventies and early eighties, um, you know, we only had very few channels on the TV. So we were three hours from Detroit, an hour and a half from Buffalo. So we would watch a lot of the Lions and a lot of the Bills, a lot of Big Ten football and some in the, uh, New York football. And but I just from watching it and playing neighborhood football, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, but my first actual con like shoulder pads with full equipment on football wasn't until yeah. I was a freshman in high school. Wow. wow. So, you know, by that time you're 14, 15 years, you know, 14, mm -hmm. 15 years old. And my brother had just left the high school that I was entering in Canada. And he had went down to Kent, Ohio to Kent state university on a football scholarship. So he was kind of like the big name at our high school for, and really for any Canadian to go down to the States um on scholarship to play football was a pretty impressive thing coming out of Canada especially back then now it's it's more common mm -hmm. um so I had like big shoes to fill and and you know ninth grade I was as green as a leaf could be in the spring right uh, I never really hit anybody in a football way okay um so the you know the plan was get through high school, get a scholarship like my brother did, go to the States, hopefully, you know, uh, do well there playing football and then get drafted. Yeah. Um, and knowing like that's the long-term plan, the big scheme of things, knowing as time went on, we're going to have to make adjustments or, and, and you got to have some luck not to get hurt, mm -hmm. things like that. So after my third year at my high school in Canada, White Oaks High School, um, I, I mean, I was playing well. I was a starter. And I, and I, I got to know, how big were you at the time? Because for people that, that are listening, they might not have an idea. <laughs> so, you're, you're a pretty big dude. You're a pretty right. big dude. So 11th grade, you know, 11th grade, or in Canada, as we would say, grade 11. Yeah. Um, you know, I was probably like 6'4", six, 6'4", four, six, four, like 250, 260. Wow. Wow. Um, so, then, so then after three years and I still had in Canada at that time, you went to high school for five years. Okay. Um, so going in after my third year of Canadian high school football, my brother and I sat down and talked and, and he was already finishing his third year at Kent state. And we we're like, if we're really going to make this happen, so we've got to make a move here. Somehow we've got to do something. We brainstormed and, and it, the idea became, why don't I move down to Kent, Ohio, where he is live with him and go to Kent Roosevelt High School to get a year of exposure to American football and hopefully keep our fingers crossed that I get noticed by scouts and get a scholarship offer somewhere. Okay. Now, because the team that I, the high school that I went to had like five, like five-star like football athletes that were getting scholarships. And so they had a lot of scouts coming to our games. Mm -hmm. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes there. Like we had to go to court so my parents could sign off on guardianship to my brother. Wow. I was going to a different country, even though Canada and the U.S. are very much alike. Sure. It's still going to a different country, different laws. Yeah. Plus that school had to, Kent Roosevelt High School had to 
kind of be like okay with it like you know because really and if you look at it i'm taking a spot of an american kid american player yeah but you know what they were the opposite they were absolutely freaking awesome they welcomed me with open arms and they were like we'll do whatever we can to help you you know get noticed and 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 recognized and um so we did all that stuff i moved down there um played at kent roosevelt and and was lucky enough to get some offers one of them being michigan state and that's yeah. where i took one of my visits and and i it just felt right like the right place to go um and and that's what i chose and and uh ended up at michigan state uh nick saban was a guy that recruited me because ohio was one of his areas yeah and yeah. he was good friends with the head coach at my high school okay wow so that didn't hurt yeah um but at the time, you know, Nick was a, he was a DB coach in college at mm. Michigan State. And, and that's not to, you know, say or devalue his position, but compared to where he is now, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a, way time, up a little bit, right? As one of the, <laughs> you could go down as one of the best college football coaches ever. True, true. And so then I went to state and kind of redrew the plan on what I wanted to happen over the next four or five years, pending if I got redshirted. And... Mm. And then that's where, you know, I started taking, actually, I started taking steroids, like, in May of my senior year of high school. So it was like the last month of high school. Okay. Gotcha. I started taking some steroids and, you know, it was a small, small cycle, but regardless, it was steroids. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, um, and then I, and then I set on that path of using steroids for those next five years at Michigan State. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I was going to ask, I mean man, you're, you're a football player at Michigan state. I'm sure there was like a little partying here and there, but, but it sounds like, so there was nothing really that crazy going on until you actually get to the, the big leagues. Right. For me personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, there was like, there was, I, I would say there was some cr like crazy stuff. Like I wouldn't say that it's normal to cheat on a drug test. Okay. Yeah. So the, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. that's not normal behavior. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I shouldn't even laugh at that. I, thank God I can look back at it and learn my lesson with that, sure. with that mistake. Um, but I, you know, cheated on the test, the drug test for the Rose Bowl. And I cheated on the drug test for the Gator Bowl the year oh. after. Okay. Um, and the NCAA, NCAA testing at the time was very, you know, very mediocre. Sure. Um and, and I'm sure that had a lot to do with budgeting budgets and athletics and all that stuff. So you really only got tested if you went to a bowl game. Oh, okay. You know, okay. and, uh, but yeah, I, that's where I kind of, I, you know, obviously ramped it up over five years there. Yeah. And, you know, surrounded myself with not people that were there, but people that were from out of state that really knew their stuff mm. on on how to do cycles of steroids you know as safe as possible yeah and maximize your benefit you know and it's like no that's not rationalization it was wrong mm. period it was wrong yeah but it was like and i knew it was wrong and i knew it was breaking the rules but i knew i wanted to be the best and i was willing to take that risk right and i was willing to take the risk of getting caught yeah okay gotcha yeah so 
tell us a little bit about just getting drafted and, and actually going into the NFL. You know, it was, you know, first and foremost, it was an honor, even though you'd never know it at the time, it was an honor to be drafted by the Green Bay Packers. I mean, one of the greatest organizations in, in the NFL yeah. with tradition, um, with loyalty from fans, uh, just a, a phenomenal place. And when I look back at interviews or things that I had said and done and the way I acted during negotiations, it's, it's really kind of, in a way, I look at it, I, it's like, I don't regret really anything sure. because, uh, you know, I had to go through that to get to where I'm at today. And mm-hmm. today I'm, I'm good with me. Um, but, you know, it's, it, I was an, you know, arrogant SOB. So I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, I was reading. I was reading. Yeah, yeah, I, I was reading through your Wikipedia and and kind of laughing a little bit. Like I'm sure you can find some of the stuff oh, humorous yeah. now, but it was like, you know, was, he, he referred to Green Bay as a village, and uh, you know, some, but I was, some other, I was, you know, and and I just and and I, uh, I I I didn't want to assume anything, but I having you know heard a little bit about you and uh i kind of thought that maybe you would look back on that and and see like hey okay maybe there was maybe there was a little bit uh of an ego there maybe there was a lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah okay maybe maybe there was a lot of me playing god Mm, wow wow. (laughs) and thinking i had all the answers not just for me but for you too um I, i it was i mean it was in so many ways, it was out of control. Hmm. Um, and, you know, my ego was just, uh, yeah, I, I started to believe my press. Hmm. And, and you know what, a lot of yeah. this stuff, I mean, look, a lot of the stuff was true. Like, like, look, I did do the, the bad things and I did do the good things. Sure. So like I did them both, but that, I couldn't in, inside, I, I couldn't differentiate the two and be kind of like, stay grounded, stay humble, mm. keep your head down, keep grinding, keep working hard. Yeah. Instead, I was like trying to get a, as big a contract as possible because I knew it was a short lived career. Even if you play 10 years, it's a short lived career. Yeah. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, I was like, offensive linemen don't make enough money. Okay. So I was like, I want to kind of break bigger threshold. Um, and, and that wasn't my main, my main motivation. I mean, I'd be lying if I said it was for the other offensive linemen in the future to make more money. Mm-hmm. It was for me, but it was like, but this is going to open the gates um, to where other offensive linemen, even the next year, can renegotiate or negotiate if their contracts are up for seven-figure salaries that deserve it, that were pro bowlers already. Yeah, okay. Okay, that makes sense. So now you're in the league. And give us just a, uh, an idea of what your career looks like and how this leads into the, the drug use, because at some point, I guess you get into, into painkillers, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so how did all that actually come about? So I, I stopped, um, I stopped taking steroids after like the Gator Bowl, which would have been like the first, well, I think we played New Year's Eve. Um, so it was New Year's Eve of 88 going into January 1st of 89. Mm. And I didn't take him for like, I want to say 12 weeks okay. 
because the combine was coming up. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And if, you know, I knew if I test positive at the combine, it's going to, it's going to, de- it's going to, you know, lower your value. It's, it's kind of like if you're even today, I mean, you see guys getting in trouble mm-hmm. off the field, it lowers their value. It doesn't matter how good athlete you are. Yeah. Um, so my thing was, you know, make sure that I test clean and I wasn't going to chance cheating on a drug test in the, at the combine, because I didn't know what kind of test they were doing. Cause they were doing, I didn't know if they were doing blood and urine or what they were doing, but I knew it would be way more sophisticated than college because they did have budgets, big budgets. Yeah, sure. So I got off the steroids, um, did my combine, you know, did well at the combine, got back on steroids because now the next time I'm really going to get tested is when I sign mm-hmm. in or, or that the big camp that comes up in August. Well, we were so far in negotiations as far as what we wanted. I got on some steroids that were water-based. So when I stopped taking them, they'd be out of my system in three, four weeks. Okay. Um, instead of oil-based, which takes longer and, and half-life and, you know, all these things, mm-hmm. stuff that, that matters that really doesn't matter in this conversation. Sure. But I got back on them and then to play it safe, I got off of them probably two months, even before I signed and I signed September 5th, I want to say of 89, which was going into the first week of the opener. So I missed all the mini camps. I missed all the training camp, um, everything, uh, which was not a great way to set yourself up starting out as a rookie and, and then talked all that, you know that smack that mm-hmm. we talked about earlier yeah and, yeah and then some but um you know the press conference i did when i did sign i did say <laughs> every village needed a village idiot <laughs> which kind of made amends like kind of mended things a little bit <laughs> you know but the bottom line is look they draft you to play to play yeah, and perform sure. um not to make friends and uh and you know that's in that transition right there and that in that like say even that one month period i started filling that void with painkillers and and with alcohol now i wasn't i was i would say i was more at that moment more a drug addict than an alcoholic i didn't feel like i was drinking alcoholically but within a year i was okay okay Um, And, and so how did this actually come into the picture i mean you hear you know we hear this connection all the time now, right. With guys in the NFL or guys that that are athletes and going to painkillers, you know, just trying to, and I know things were different back in the day. I hear stories about, um, you know, guys that were literally, you know, chewing up painkillers like at halftime and stuff. Right. right? And and getting shot up by, by trainers with all kinds of stuff just to keep playing. Was it out of, boredom was it out of like what led to the actually just starting to take him was it was there an injury you were dealing with or what well fun i mean fundamentally really keeping it simple Mm -hmm. um and i've looked back at this thousands of times in my life okay Uh, you know it's a disease yeah right so i'm not going to crutch on the disease and say well i have a disease that's why i didn't pan out in green bay right so right. i'm blaming it on the disease no that's not an excuse because you have a choice to recover you do have a choice i just didn't think i had a choice because i was so deep into it okay. and and yeah it you know it started with yeah you're gonna have 
shoulder ache, bad back or knee or something. And, and you know, the painkillers, at least in Green Bay, they weren't flung around like you would see in movies. Okay. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like there's a big bowl of painkillers everybody right, just grabs right. from. I mean, mm-hmm. I wish there was at the time, <laughs> but there wasn't. Okay. Um, but you know, you could you could get creative and and on ways of getting stuff from different doctors, different pharmacies. Nothing was networked with internet. You know, you're basically conning people, conning doctors, conning pharmacists for for prescription drugs, and and you're still getting drugs from the team. Um, but each one thinks they're individually giving, right? Because you, know, I mean, it's it's just a big con game. And, um, and that's, unfortunately, that's one of those side effects of this disease is that, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, and and a bunch of, they're kind of almost like go to a moral thing of side effects Mm -hmm. where, and then, so people get, you know, even, even last week, I spoke to somebody who was struggling, I spoke, I spoke with their family and I had said to them, you know, look at your son, like you're looking at a cancer patient. Would you be mad at that cancer patient if he had cancer? No, you wouldn't. Well, it's, a, it's really the same thing in my belief. It's you, that person has a disease and they're at that point where, you know, and the big book talks about it and I'm, you know, I won't talk, I'll say 12 step, I won't talk sure. about the actual name of it, but the 12 step program in the book, it talks about you, there's that jumping off place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you know, when you're in it, that if you stop, you're going to die. Yeah. But if you continue, you're going to die. Right. So what are your options? <laughs> it's like, what's option C? Yeah. There is no option C. So, you know, that, you know, that's a difficult place to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's, you know, directly, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, not showing up for stuff, uh, you know, being late not being employable you know there's so many things that go with that like if somebody has cancer somebody has diabetes they don't become a thief yeah right you know <laughs> well and i think one of the sayings that i've heard that i really like you know there's just so many good one-liners right. and stuff in recovery right uh, <laughs> but is uh hate the disease not the addict right exactly. Exactly. and and i think that's a, a really good way to to think about it um although you know I, I know that's that's a hard that's a hard it's hard it is hard it is hard to understand that yeah. especially for somebody who's related to or married to or has that sibling or whatever that is and they're not the ones with the problem the other ones are the ones with the problem mm-hmm. and they don't get it and it, it's totally makes sense that you don't get it because why are they acting so messed up yep you know and and one of the things that i in the last couple of years I've started to do is to say to certain people that don't understand, Mm -hmm. I say, look, whether you're love sugar or not, I want you to cut out 100% of all the sugar in your diet for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. And, and you may not be a ginormous, you know, dessert person or a sugar fiend or anything, but, you know, you'll nibble on a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that has sugar in it. If you cut out 100% sugar, and when you start shaking mm-hmm. and getting aggravated and irritated, 
that's the closest thing I can relate to, to somebody who's not an addict on what it feels like. Now, if you get somebody that does indulge daily on desserts and yeah, stuff, they'll, notice. Well, yeah. they'll, they'll in three days be like, I get it. I understand. And then they go have their dessert mm. and it's like, well, wait, just don't, don't do the dessert. It's yeah. a lot easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So now you, you, so walk me through this. Like, what is the progression? Like with you start taking the pain pills, you're not, you don't feel like, you know, initially you're drinking as much. It sounds like it's more about the pills. The drinking's yeah. just kind of there. How is this, what is the progression looking like overall and how is it affecting your, your career? Is that, you know, directly affecting the career. Um, opiates or the painkillers I was on and even alcohol are depressants. They're downers. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're not uppers. They're not speed. Um, but I was like, this thing makes me feel like when I take five or six painkillers, like I feel euphoric. Mm -hmm. so it's like i feel great so which means i'm looser which means i'm faster and quicker and all this but it ain't showing on film uh, right okay. during your game uh, okay. it's like why are you moving so slow because wow. you're lethargic you're in slow motion and, and you don't realize it mm -hmm. um but you know the the disease you know progresses as does tolerance level your physical chemical you know bio you know biologically and physiology with physiology and everything it's like your receptors everything your body builds a tolerance to that drug mm -hmm. or whatever it is sure and then it wants more to get the same effect and you're constantly chasing that high that i had in the beginning because if drinking in the beginning wasn't fun to a degree and if taking a few painkillers with some alcohol wasn't fun i never would have done it i never would have had a problem yeah but I felt so good doing it. I got to the point where I was like, well, I'm going to do this. Even when we don't go to practice, I'm going to take some painkillers when it's our day off because okay. it makes me feel good. Gotcha. And, and then the tolerance level goes up. The, the progression of the disease happens, you know, like literally like the progression of it internally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you wake up and literally I'm, I'm talking literally, I woke up one day and I was like, how did I get to this point? And I'm taking 50, 60 painkillers a day. Wow. And that was still three, four years before I got sober. Wow. Wow. So now where does this have to lead? Like what's going on in your personal life? What's going on? It's, at some point, like, as I read it there, the Packers say like that there was an off field injury of some kind, right? Yeah, well, there was. I mean, there there was a concussion. Okay. Um, there was a concussion in a, in um, our first preseason game of my last my fourth year there. So it was ninety two, mm. um, which you know sidelined me for a few weeks. I mean, yeah, a few weeks of preseason. Okay. Stepped back on the field during practice, and once I started moving, you know, like I mean, it's full tilt, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was still foggy and I, I'm, I would say there was probably some fogginess that was accompanied from the concussion also accompanied by the, you know, painkillers. Sure. Um, but ended up, they put me on something called the PUP list, physically unable to perform, which was, uh, I'm not sure they have, they, they still might have that list in the NFL, but what it does is it puts you on a list where 
you can be off the roster for six weeks where they can bring another player on. I mean, you still make your money and everything, okay. but it kind of gives the team a break because if they put you on IR injured reserve, mm -hmm. you're done for the year. You can't come back. That's right. just the way the rules were. And so they put me on PUP. I came off a of PUP and, um, first couple hits in practice and it was like my head was ringing again wow so then within a week they put me on injured reserve and there was what 10 games left in the season mm -hmm. so they put me on injured reserve and um and you know so i was like done for the year knowing i was done for the year okay, okay. and 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 then the usage became greater um and and i was even you know made aware that you know look you got to be careful with painkillers and head injuries mm. especially in the beginning of especially in the initial time of, that you have the head injury because the painkiller could mask something that could kill you you know that you would feel pain for and you could say that you feel this pain yeah. and they could you know address it instead of not feeling anything and being totally numb and then you know you die from it wow wow so now what exactly happens where the Packers are, are like, okay, we, we've just got to let you go. So my contract was, I, I had signed a four-year deal. Uh, the first three years were under one coaching regime. Then my fourth year, um, another coaching regime comes in because the, the first ones all got fired. And then after my contract up expires, you know, you have, they have a choice to either renegotiate a new one mm -hmm. or to cut you loose as a free agent. Okay. And uh, they had until like, I want to say February to tell me. Um, and they had, I was already in living in Michigan at the time and um, they had called me up and I didn't know if I was going to resign with them. Right. You know, at that time, my addiction was so deep. Like I was, blaming the Packers. I was blaming media. I was blaming everybody that it was definitely not my fault. It was everybody's fault, but mine. Um, but you know, obviously I was the problem. I was the, the, I was the common denominator in all those problems and issues. So they had called me up and said that, you know, that they're going to make, let me go as a free agent. And, you know, they were, they were professional about it. They were pros. Right. Yeah. And they said, you know, we're not going to resign you. So, you know, just so you know, we're giving you the info and, and letting you know that, that you're free to go anywhere to play anywhere you want to play. Mm. And, and, and that was, so that was February of 93. Okay. okay. Or late January, early February, 93. So you're, you're pretty deep in your addiction here and I may be way off base, but I'm just going to step into your shoes for a minute but, and, yeah. and just knowing that headspace too, uh, with the, the painkillers. Cause that was kind of my, uh, you know, drug of choice, if you want to mm -hmm. call it that, you know, I'm just thinking I've spent my whole life working towards like what I want to do. And, you know, and I'm, I get caught up in this, you know, this whole thing and my career doesn't go the way I, I thought it would. And I had, you know, all these dreams and expectations and everything. And now here I am and I've been cut loose and I have this, you know, this massive drug problem on top of that, that had to be a pretty bad combination. I would think. <laughs> 
that's an understatement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, right? I mean, you know what it feels like. Because mm-hmm. for you, like, if you're in recovery, it's like, listen, you felt the same pain I did. Mm-hmm. And I felt the same pain you did just because mine happened to be on the front page because of my job doesn't mitigate the pain to be less. That emotional pain and that obsession for the next high is the same as probably yours was yeah so that's why i think that people in recovery can relate and they bond so quickly Mm. you know on on they know where the other person's been and what they've gone through and what they've done to pull them you know do or done to pull themselves out of that um but yeah it was bad and and i thought you know four years prior to that i was on top of the world Mm. as far as in of career like right before i went to green bay i got you know this in the first round draft choice first offensive lineman to make you know seven figure contract all this stuff and then four years later in a nice way being kind of like you know onward move on right like you know getting kicked i don't want to say kicked out of the league but in a nice way getting kicked out yeah push aside kind of yeah and um and was really like what i would today consider i was a cancer on the team you know it's like I was not a good guy like I wasn't like maliciously bad to teammates or anything but I was not like a guy you'd want you don't want an active alcoholic or drug addict on your team Uh, it's just I mean as you know it's in any business even in your own circle of five six people that you hang out with you know what's coming eventually there's going to be bad stuff coming Mm. Um, trouble drama whatever the case may be so um i thought it couldn't get worse after they let me go <laughs> of course it's a phrase you probably should never say <laughs> and um you know february 8th to 93 my brother died at 31 wow uh from from cancer and that was tough that was that was rough and then it wasn't 12 months after that uh, my parents divorced after 42 or 43 years of being married you know, and, and these are not excuses. Sure. These are just, these were kind of like things where you would think, and I knew at the time that the drugs were my problem and the alcohol, like I knew that those were two things were the problem and I had to straighten it out, but I didn't know how. And then I started on this like bad losing streak with them letting me, first of all, having a horrible career in Green Bay, then, then uh, the Packers letting me go, mm-hmm. then my brother passing, mm-hmm. then my parents divorcing. Yeah. And, you know, you always think mom and dad are home, right? Mm-hmm. But then they're divorcing. And it's like, what the heck's going on here? And you, I would think that, I think a normal person would think one of those would have been a wake-up call to be like, hey, stop, you know, slow down or stop the, the intake of chemicals, get your stuff together and right. start helping whatever participating in life instead the opposite happened my doses went up and i wanted to get number and number um to get away from that pain wow Wow. and uh and then continued to do that until you know march 23rd of 95 i i get that 100 i mean you know uh a short snippet in my story is that a really good friend of mine died and uh in a drunk driving accident 
and yeah, just wanted to feel numb. And, and I get what you were saying about those, you know, those not being excuses. I will say that for me, it subconsciously, at least it was a good excuse to keep using, you know, at the, t- at like, the time. Absolutely. You know, um, he's yeah. gone and life yeah. sucks and right. yeah. So where does this actually have to lead? Like what, what is the, you know, I don't know. Some people don't like referring to it as a rock bottom, but what, what has to happen for you to start turning things in the other direction? So, so, um, you're talking, so, you know, we're talking March of 95, I guess. So March 23rd of 95, and I was released in like January, February of 92. So pretty much was out of league three years and drank and drugged for three more years. Okay. And, you know, there was a lot of just, you know, just not good, healthy living going on. I mean, yeah. you know, as far as like being, you know, doing the right thing, I wasn't employed. I wasn't employable. I was not reliable enough to show up to work anywhere, let alone, you know, in the NFL, which was my dream. So a good friend of mine who was not in the program um, had just pretty much sat down and had a talk with me uh, it was a week before March 23rd it was maybe four or five days before <clears throat> and he had said he had said the same thing hundreds of people had said to me before but this time uh, it clicked and I was ready to hear it because there was you know there was a lot of people and I've and I've said this before more than more than a dozen times there was a lot of people in that organization in Green Bay that tried to help me okay. they they kind of knew something was wrong, but I don't think they could put their finger on it. And if you're not kind of educated on alcoholism or drug addiction, like un- unless you're recovering from it, like you'll spot one in a, in a heartbeat. Right. But if you're not, if that's not part of your life, you're like, why is like, why is that person struggling so mm-hmm. bad? Mm-hmm. You know, does he have a mental illness or, or just what's going on? Right. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of people that had tried to help me and, uh, and even doctors that would give me scripts that finally cut me off and said, I think you have a problem. And I, you know, would be like, there's no way I have a problem. Right. And looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what a fool I was. Mm. And, but it was, it, it, the catalyst was my, my friend talking to me. I have a, you know, had a ton of respect for, still have a ton of respect for and, and he, I wish I could say he said something super profound and these yeah. bright lights showed up. And But he basically said, you know, if you don't stop what you're doing and if you don't change what you're doing and, and if you don't stop taking all these pills and drinking all this alcohol on a daily basis, you, you know, it'll kill you. It, you know, and you've been sitting on this couch because it was at my house and you've been sitting on this couch for three years now doing this. And... I was like, wait a second, what do you mean three years? And he's like, well, since you've been out of the NFL. And, and I was like, what do you mean I've been out of the NFL three years? I've been out of the NFL like eight, nine, six, seven, eight, nine months. And he's like, no, it's been three years. So like, you know, you're talking 1993. So maybe the internet was like super infant, but there was no like, hey, go to your computer and check the calendar. Right, right. <laughs> but I had to get the calendar off the kitchen wall. And I looked and I was like, oh my God. It's 1995. Wow. And I, I knew 
and I had known that that the drugs and alcohol were the problem probably for four years prior to that day. Okay. And I had tried hundreds of different ways to stop Mm. and couldn't do it, but it was always on my own. I never tried to go to a 12 step place. I had never, I just tried to look, I got the willpower of an ox, you know, so I can do this or Mm -hmm. I can make this happen. And it's one of the things in life that, you know, kicked my ass up and down the street and kept doing it until I was willing to be like, you know what, I need help. And and, um, he said, you know, are you open to trying treatment? And I said, I'll do anything at this point because I have nothing to lose. I've already lost everything. Mm -hmm. And he had called down to Brighton, Michigan at Brighton Hospital, and they did have a bed available like in three days. Um, so I couldn't get there right away. But um, I was in treatment, you know, voluntarily in treatment three days later. Wow. Wow. And so you go to treatment and then it sounds like at some point you get uh, involved with the 12 step program. Did you just kind of jump right into that or how did that work out? So it got introduced to I mean, I, the most I knew about 12 step programs were, were things I've seen in movies. Sure. Yeah. You know, like a snippet mm-hmm. here. I didn't know much about it. I, I couldn't, couldn't tell you what any of the steps were. Um, had an assumption that, an, you know, a quote unquote alcoholic was a, a 70 year old guy in an alley homeless with a big overcoat on in the middle right. of summer with a brown paper bag, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> As a wine bottle in it. That was my stereotype of what the, those meetings would be like full of those people. Okay. And come to find out it, that that disease does not discriminate, um, whether you're male, female, you know, uh, tall, short, fat, athlete, politician, black, white, Asian, doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. It doesn't care. It'll kill you dead. And, um, so it was, it was, uh, I got introduced to the 12 steps and a 12 step meeting about my fourth or fifth day in treatment at that treatment facility it, they had like an alumni meeting where people that went through that treatment yeah. center would come back and they had a meeting and the guy at the podium talked about stuff that i like i was like this guy's this guy been following me around because he's telling me my story hmm. right and so it was like i was relating and i was like thinking okay i still shaken from detoxing and stuff but there was a huge thing that happened on day 11. Um, and I was only in treatment for 17 days. But at day 11, we had a day off okay. from the like meeting and from counseling meetings and all that. And we gathered in the lounge. And at that time, you were allowed to smoke um, and, and use nicotine. So say out of all the people that were inpatient, say close to 40, I'd say like 37, 38 of them were smokers. And two me and one other guy chewed tobacco so we're all kind of sitting around telling telling each other stories of our you know train wrecks Mm -hmm. and some of this stuff was so much nonsense um and just so ridiculous but at the core of the story it didn't matter what that person's job was or career was or whether they were soccer mom or politician at the state or federal level or a judge it doesn't matter what it was yeah. a ditch digger the core of the story was the same and the emotions and the feelings that we all felt were the same 
and the pain that we felt were the same. But some of the stories were hilarious, right? Sure. So I was like, I have to get out of this room because my eyes are burning from all the smoke in the air because it's winter still in Michigan mm-hmm. and it's fairly cold out. So like the, the room, like <laughs> cut the smoke with a knife it was so thick of cigarette smoke. So I was like, I need to get out of this room because my eyes are burning from all the smoke. It was like being in a bar, right? And so I went back to my little, my room in the hospital, sat down on the side of the bed. And that's where like, like what I would consider like a major, major catalyst happened. My stomach had hurt from laughing. And it's the first time I could remember my stomach hurting from laughing in a decade. And I thought to myself, I, if someone were to tell me that 11 days into this, that I would be laughing that hard without the use of drugs or alcohol, I'd say that'd be impossible. Hmm. And I, I was teachable enough to be like, whatever it is, I'm going to just soak it up like a sponge and I'm going to dig my nails into it because this is a good feeling. And, and, and was there for six more days. Um, and then went into, went back up home to, you know, upper Michigan, not the UP, but upper Michigan and did intensive outpatient for six months. Uh, so I met with a counselor, uh, every like twice a week for an hour or two hours. Mm -hmm. And then after those six months, um, just continued with meetings and, but I was doing meetings from the first day I went, got out, uh, I was I averaged over a meeting a day for the first five years of my sobriety. Wow. Wow. What would you say was the biggest thing that you struggled with early on in sobriety, just as you were getting started? Oh man. You know, I, early on, I didn't, it wasn't until now. <laughs> because now it's like, okay, you're almost, you know, you're over 26 years sober. You should be here by now, right? Okay. Like I've gotten a lot of stuff accomplished more, you know, that I had set goals for mm-hmm. and I'm not there yet, but that's okay. It's just taking longer than, than planned. Uh, the key is that I didn't have to go back out. Um, but in early sobriety, you know, I, I, like when I read step two and step two talks about insanity, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, does not apply to me okay? because, because I was on such a high from being feeling good naturally that I still could. And plus I hadn't worked the steps yet and gotten sure. and dug deep and peeled the onion that I didn't really see, you know, the wreckage. And then as months went on, like at six months, did a legitimate fourth step and and then started to realize the wreckage. And but still, I was like, okay, well, there's some of the stuff you can't do anything about. There's just nothing you can do to make it right. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that you can make right and that you can do. Um, So I I was lucky enough to be surrounded by men in the program that were very um uh i don't want to say hardcore they were just very uh, fundamental about it and they would be the guy if you said hey i feel like i I need i want a drink they'd be like okay well you know where the bar is go ahead 
And that's not the answer that you're expecting to hear yeah. from somebody. Yeah. You're expecting them to go, oh, please don't, please don't. Mm -hmm. But it's like, look, if you want to wreck your life again, have at it. You know, that those are the types of guys they were. And they, and I don't, and, and it may sound like twisted, but it was done with a lot of love. Yeah. And it was yeah. kind of like, hey, man, this is not a game. Mm. This is life or death, literally. I can, I can appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think things most of the time anywhere are a little different now. What I appreciate that is the same thing that I think I appreciated in what you were describing about uh, the conversation that your friend came to have with you. And it was just, it sounds like these were guys that were being direct yeah. and just kind of no, no bullshit. Here's, here's what's going to happen. And, you know, I've really, I, I've come to see, I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned is in this deal is really how important that is, uh, especially with people that are new. Um, and not that I would necessarily say, Hey, you know, fine, then go take a drink. But, um, you know, the, the truth is, is it, if I'm, I'm not going to keep anyone sober, but at the same time, if there is something that needs to be said to someone that I feel like I should say, uh, that could benefit them, yeah. then I should probably say it because in my experience, um, sometimes you never see those people again, right? You know, and, and there is a possibility that maybe something you, you say makes a difference. Yes. And it could be the, the thing that you think is so like just irrelevant or, or just something small, but to that person, mm -hmm. it was what they needed to hear. And it was the, the way you phrased it or just the way you talked or, or addressed it because it was crucial in their life at the time. Yeah. That's and, point. and I, and I've, you know, felt that from other people where I've said, you know, you, I know you don't know this, but two years ago, when you spoke at this meeting, you said this one thing that I was struggling with mm -hmm. and I've now worked through it and they had no idea. Sure. <laughs> they were like, you were struggling with that. And I was like, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think it's important to let people know that. Yeah. Because your true friends, and and so you know, yeah, there's a difference between having friends and then you know your circle that you surround yourself with, whether they're in the program or not in the program. Mm -hmm. There are great people in this world that never have a drinking problem yeah. that do the right very thing, true. right? Yeah, very true. <laughs> so, someone that is really, really, really your friend, and feels that you know you're very important and you feel the same way with them will be honest with you and say hey look i love you and i'm sharing this with you not to cause drama or controversy but i'm sharing this with you because this is what i see from the outside from my world this is what i'm seeing you do and and i've had this conversation with people both ways in my sobriety mm -hmm. Even in the last, you know, five years. And, and, it's, and it's been like, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I care about you. And I don't want to see you veer off the path. And I'm not saying it to criticize you. I'm not saying it to be talking down or, or anything. Um, I'm just saying it because I love you. Because somebody that really is just an acquaintance will kind of be like, you know what? Not my problem. I'm not putting my nose in their business. Yeah, true. And, 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 and 
not that that's wrong, but that's what an acquaintance is versus somebody who is your inner circle. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, the way I see it is if, if I care about someone, I would rather risk hurting their feelings or pissing them off a little bit and they don't talk to me or whatever, than just not saying the thing that, you know, that, that I'm feeling very strongly uh, needs to be said. I I get that. And that's a, that's a good point. I do want to switch gears here. And I want to ask you uh, about your book, which is titled my dirty little secrets steroids alcohol and god so why did you decide to write the book you know i I released it in 09 um so i was already sober you know for 15 years or 14 years yeah 14 years yeah i wanted to write the book as soon as i retired from indie which would have been in 90 like i retired in 98 so or that was my last season so 99 in the spring of 99 i retired and i was like everybody like the you know the comeback was good and i had made a lot of things right okay but still even like i'll be the first to admit i didn't live up to the expectations i had set for myself and that a lot of people expected out of me but i had slayed my demons by going back and playing without drugs in my system and playing sober and doing all these things so when i got injured and retired i wanted to write the book and i had talked to two major publishers okay because my name was still fresh right in the league with just being out of the league and stuff and and coming back to play after being gone for three years and both of them independently said to me in conversation um in an in a nice way like if you don't name names and kind of throw people under the bus the book's not going to sell as well uh yeah and i said well the book is not about that the book is about my mistakes yeah and they wanted dirt basically they wanted dirt i mean they wanted the you know the story plus the extra dirt yeah yeah and i was like you know i'm not responsible for the actions of what the other any other player did sure i'm responsible for my actions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i said you know you know it's it's and and really there was a huge thing where people still thought the reason he didn't succeed was because of the steroids Mm. Because everybody's focus was on the steroids yeah, so yeah. much that they never saw all the side effects of all the painkillers, all the alcohol abuse and all the other things that were going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, those, those were between ni- 1989 and 1995 were the roughest years of my life. And that's when I was in the deepest uh, with the addiction. Yeah. Um, and so I also wanted people to know, you know, look, steroids could have been the gateway. What I did was wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I had already done interviews where I said that was what I did was wrong. But in an interview, you can't really say all the stuff you want to say is like you can in a book where you sure. can pick out the good details, the events that you do want to talk about and the ones that are kind of like redundant or whatever, just leave out. So 
it, it came down to them, you know, about revenue and I get it. They're a business. Yeah. They're, they're in business. I get it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to the bus. It's not, it's never been me and it never will be me. And I won't do that. Yeah. Um, even like all, uh, look, all, you know, all, you know, eat the whatever and, and take the beating and keep my mouth shut because i'm not rolling on anybody and i'm not naming names of people and and what they may have been doing might have been you know yeah cheating the system or whatever but that's on their conscience not mine okay yeah it's about this story let people know what really happened take the accountability Mm -hmm. and you know i know I, i like i knew that it would help somebody you know it's like I would say, boy, if it helps one person, it'd be great. I knew it would help more than one person, yeah, you know, yeah, it might yeah. help too, right? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. but I, I figured somebody like a soccer mom could relate to that story if you take some of the semantics out of sure. football. Instead of football, you change the word, the emotions, the feelings, the pain, the struggle, the chase of the high, all the stuff across the board of addiction and alcoholism is the same. Doesn't matter if you're male, female. Um, you know, an adult or, or youth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Looking for the, uh, the similarities are there, right? And uh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about just before we start to wrap up here is uh, because some of the the viewers and and listeners may not know about this, um, but you were talking about just a moment ago, like not living up to, you know, your own expectations uh, you know, expectations that other people had of you and so on and so forth. And I think the, you know, we can't kind of escape the visual, uh, example of that in your two sports illustrated issues. Right. right. So, uh, for the listeners that haven't seen this, so there's the first issue when you were a rookie and man, you were just like jacked (laughs) (laughs) and it says, uh, the incredible bulk, right? Right. And then um, I, I don't know exactly when it re- was released, but but after your career, right, or yeah. after you left Green Bay, it was, was that, yeah, it was actually when I got put on IR. So it was okay. like towards the end of my last season there. Okay. Okay. So then they released another issue, and it was the incredible bust, and it was you, and it had that first issue. Uh, kind of transposed like a, l- a little bit smaller the same picture you know when you think a- a- about that and and just like you said these you know this journey you've gone on and and looking back at it now and i know you're you know you obviously you've given so many hours of thought and now so many sober hours of thought too what are the lessons that that you've kind of taken away uh, fr- from this journey, would you say? And just looking back on all of this, I would say the the, the two biggest things that are like in the center of my world right now, or that are at least very evident and for me very obvious, mm. and and I I may share with people, and they may not think that that's the most obvious thing, but it's me. It's, it was my life. It was my story. So I know what it was that that when that issue came out it was it was bad 
It was bad. And, and, you know, I mean, it was embellished bad too by the writer, which didn't help, but that's not her fault. That's, I still had a core of the, of the bad that she could embellish on. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was bad and it was me and, you know, that's traumatic. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, being on the cover of SI was a big deal. Not that it's not now, but it was a bigger deal then because the internet, there really was no other, like they were like the kings of sports. If mm-hmm. SI said it, you know, uh, it wasn't gospel, but it was very well respected because they wouldn't just send any, you know, researcher or person to do an interview with you or, or whatever, write a story about you. So it, it was a main source of information so when everybody saw the big this is what's about to happen this greatness is about to happen and then you know i never said what they wrote on that cover because they wrote the incredible bulk they said and i think they said maybe the best college prospect offensive lineman to ever come out of college Mm -hmm. i didn't say that they did they wrote it on the cover I may have thought it and I may have believed it, yeah. but I never said it and, w- and was never quoted saying it. So then the train wreck happens for four years. Mm-hmm. They write that bus thing and they're right. I mean, what they wrote was right. Um, it was correct. It was accurate. Um, some of that, you know, writer just, you know, expanding on the story it's on stuff that just wasn't some of that stuff was just embellished more to make the story sound worse in certain areas but it was a bad story yeah sure (laughs) like it was a bad on me Hmm. but that gave me once i got sober and once i got the opportunity and was lucky enough to go back and play it gave me a perspective that was unbelievable because i got to play in the nfl as an active drunk and an active addict. And I got to play in the NFL with a crystal clear mind and looking through crystal clear eyes. And it's a lot easier to do it when you're crystal clear, but it's still very tough, right? So that perspective for me is priceless. How many people get that perspective? Like, Usually if you're out after three years and there have been players that have been out that long and come back and play. And there's been players that have been out, I think maybe even four or five years and have come back to play. And well, I consider myself extremely lucky to have had gone back to play, had the epic rise, the epic fail, and then a modest comeback and a nice transition into the real world after the retirement. Mm -hmm. So that perspective of life in sport was is is priceless like i can't tell you how priceless that is that's awesome and and today and i've felt this way for the last i'd say four or five years football listen i'm not gonna deny it it was a big part of my life i love still watching love watching football you know this last season was a little odd because of covid and stuff but I still am a huge football fan, Sure, still a huge Michigan state fan. And, but looking now, 
in the big, in like the really big scheme of things, football was really kind of like a platform and a detail that I could use to carry the message. And that message doesn't just have to be about sobriety. It could be about overcoming adversity. It could be about, you know, some of the things I talk about, you know, making a plan. Um, and, and I've refined these things when I speak, when I do my public speaking stuff. Um, I'll talk to companies about adversity because salespeople constantly get no's, no, 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 I don't want a deal. No, no, right? How many no's before they start to doubt themselves? Yeah. And it's like, you just got to keep grinding. It's, 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 you know, um, so I was lucky enough to live all that great stuff and all that painful stuff. And the tragedy would be as if I didn't learn from that stuff mm. and continue to act that way. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean I'm a perfect human. I make mistakes. Um, the key is, is the focus constantly on the self-improvement and self-development of oneself, not for me, but so I can be of better service to you or my neighbor. Yeah. And it, that neighbor doesn't have to be in a program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That neighbor could be like having two extra bags of like, two extra bags of groceries that they can't carry up because they've got 10 bags in their hands already. And I'd be like, Hey, you want me to grab those for you? You know? And, and that's like, you know, a small little example, but it's like some people going to be like, well, that's like when I was growing up, it was like, talked about helping an older lady cross the street at a light. Well, you know what? That stuff matters. That stuff has carries a lot of noble, like no, like, like great, what I consider great characteristics in a human or that humans have that we don't show as much as we need to, to, yeah. to have that noble character and to be a step, like being a man today, the definition of being a man today for me, and I think for a lot, and I think society's changed it. And from being a man when I was in college is like epically, the spectrum is different because then it was about being ginormous you know i'll kick it, it was like wwe yeah, right macho guy yeah right and now it's about hey be strong enough to stand up and dig your heels in on what you believe in and don't be afraid of other people and what they say about you or what they're saying about you or what they're saying about that other person or whatever yeah. it's like and, and I, and I do that. And it's a lot of times it's not popular. It's, 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 and, and, and I try to do it in as much of a loving way as I can, mm -hmm. because I like things black and white. I think a lot of us do like simple, right? Fundamental. It's either this way or it's this way. Yeah. Well, there's obviously you can't live that way. I found out after I left the NFL, you can't really live that way. There's gotta be a gray area. Well, the gray area has a name. It's called tolerance. It's called tolerance and of what you are willing to tolerate in others or yourself or how you know what you're willing to accept what you're not willing to accept why does that make me angry when that person does that well for me and you probably the first thing that happens is what in me do i not like that they're doing yeah right what is it that i gotta change in me mm -hmm. but it's not always that it is like that 
50% of the time, but it's not always that. And so, so to me, I look at football as I, I'm not going to discount it and say, oh, it was just football. It was awesome. I loved it. It was a dream come true. And then it was a, a train wreck. And then it was an opportunity where after burning all the bridges, so I was lucky enough that somebody gave me an opportunity and gave me a chance. And that's all I needed was a chance. Mm-hmm. And I knew even if I didn't make it, just because they sign you doesn't mean you make it. Even if I get cut, at least I tried. And at least I did it sober. And I could walk away then with a clear conscience going, you know what? I gave it my best without any steroids, without any alcohol, without any painkillers, and it wasn't good enough. Hmm. And I could walk away with a with peace in my soul. Yeah. And luckily I made it, you know. Started for two years, two and a half years, retired with an injury and walked away peacefully because I had surrounded myself with men of great character and people of great character that held me accountable. Oh, I really love that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. That's pretty awesome. And they, and they, and they remind me, you know, they remind me that, you know, you have, I have an obligation today to to carry that message hmm. whether that person's in the program or not program just carry the message of doing the right thing yeah yeah and and do it with your actions and 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 just do it with how you walk how you talk and and what you do you know, in your life on a day-to-day basis i mean i hit my knees every day you know in the morning because i know if i don't it's like all right, i think today i got it i'm good Mm. And I want to take that chance. Uh, man, I, yeah, I hear you. I, <laughs> you know, I, I hear it's you. like what I'm doing is working. So exactly. I'm not going to mess yeah. with it. I know. I get that. Well, before we wrap up, I do want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation, whether it's for, you know, someone that's uh, thinking about getting sober. Um, someone that's maybe newly sober has been around a while and is struggling. If maybe there's something you'd like to share with them. Yeah. You know, I mean, <clears throat> a lot of times you hear in meetings, people come in, whether they're there by the court or whether they're there by their family kind of pressuring them or whether they're just there to check it out. And they, when they, it's their turn to talk, you know, they, they say their name and they say, you know, I'm not sure if I am or if I'm not, but I'm just here to check things out. Mm-hmm. Well, trust me, if you're there, chances are you almost 100% you are because I don't, I've never found myself in a ladies bridge tournament, card tournament. Why? Because <laughs> I'm not a lady and I don't play bridge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't go to the, a place like that and sit back and go, I'm just want to check things out just to see if maybe I like to play bridge, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, you know, ladies and, 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 and see if that fits in with my schedule. Um, so the chances are that you, the person is, but only they can make that decision yeah. and they can make that thing and they can, and, and they should know that they're that they're in a place where it's a safe place that they can ask questions that you know are, are vulnerable but if it was like you know I don't like to give advice because all I can do is share an experience and the one thing I would say is give it a chance 
because if you're already contemplating on going or if you're going because you have to have a paper signed by the court, those things aren't by accident, you know? So if you're gonna be there voluntarily or by the nudge from the judge, it's like, give it a chance, like give it an honest chance, give it 30 days for yourself and see if your life gets better and see if you feel better. And if you don't, you don't have to stay. Yeah. You know, if you, if you decide that you're not that, nobody's going to tell you you are. Mm -hmm. But give it a chance. Um, because, you know, in the beginning, the, you know, our heads are foggy still. And, and it's like, it's hard to make a clearer decision. You know, even at a, a week away from it, your head's clear, but it's not as clear as it is a month later or three months later or six months later. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, give it a chance. What, are the, what do you have to lose? Yeah. Like, seriously, what do you have to lose? You're, I mean, for me, it was like, what do I have to lose? I'm already on a losing streak for five years, six years. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I would say, would be the one thing of, of giving it a chance. And, you know, as, as far as other things go, I mean, like, that would be probably the most important thing for a newcomer, yeah. give it a chance. And then obviously, as, as life goes on, you know, there's certain fundamentals that just have to be 100 um, yeah. in, in, in my opinion. Yeah, that's really solid advice. Yeah, I, I, I like that just to, to give it an honest shot. And yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's what I did. And it sounds like that's what you did. And, and here we are. So that's right. <laughs> you can <laughs> uh, you can learn more about Tony at Tony and you can find his book, My Dirty Little Secrets, on Amazon. Thanks again for coming on the show, Tony. Jonathan, it was a privilege to be on here, and, and thank you very much for having me. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And again, whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. Nation, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.